Lab Talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab Talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Lab Talk with Laura. Welcome to the 15th episode of Lab Talk with Laura. I am joined in the studio today by Julie Davis and Joe Drake. Uh, Julie recently graduated from UMass in the Plant, Soil, and Insect Science Department, and she'll be going to Cornell to pursue a PhD in entomology. Um, she is originally from Massachusetts. What town? Um, Cape Cod. Oh, Cape Cod. Nice. Um, and her undergraduate research investigated how the soil environment changes floral traits and how those changes in floral traits scale up to affect bee pathogen levels. Hmm. Bees. Also joining in the studio is uh, also joining us in the studio is Joe Drake. He's a PhD student in the Environmental Conservation Department. Um, he's also the current president of the UMass Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Club. Yeah, and a member of the New England Outdoor Writers Association. Uh, he's originally from southern Indiana, and he got his Master's of Science in Wildlife, Aquatic, and Wildlands Sciences in 2016 from Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas. Um, he studies how animal populations stay connected and persist across space and time in a changing and fragmented world. Thanks mm. for joining us, Julie and Joe. You're welcome. Thank you. And also joining us in the studio as my co-host today is comedian Rocky B. What up, Western Mass? <laughs> okay, so uh, we'll jump right into it, I think. Um, Julie, do you want to just tell us a little bit about your research? Sure. So um, as you beautifully summarized, I, um, I was interested in how the soil environment changes plants um, because plants are really important to bee health, um, specifically floral traits. Um, bees eat pollen and nectar, and uh, they have a variety of chemical constituents ranging from sugars to uh, what we call secondary compounds. Um, and uh, the outcome of bee health can depend on um, varying levels of, of concentrations of these compounds and sugars. Um, so I wanted to know how plant growing conditions um, change these traits. Okay, so where, where were you looking at the plants and the soil conditions? Um, so I grew plants in a greenhouse, okay. and I manipulated um, a beneficial soil fungus called arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. Um, it creates a mutualism with plants, um, enhancing their ability to take up nutrients. Um, but we don't know, or we didn't know before I did this study, how mycorrhizae affect um, floral traits. Okay. There's been a lot of studies on uh, foliar traits um, and mycorrhizae's ability to affect them. But, is, um, so can I slow you down? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. foliar traits is leaves? Yes. I'm leaves, guessing? Okay, yes. yeah. Um, <laughs> nice one. <laughs> Just guessing because of foliage, oh. making that connection. Did you? No? No. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so um, I was looking at presence and absence of this mutualistic fungus, mycorrhizae, and um, also high and low nutrient levels in the soil. So both of these are very relevant to um, both agriculture and natural systems because mycorrhizal fungi are widespread um, in natural systems and sometimes in horticulture and agriculture people amend the soil with mycorrhizae um, to kind of give their plants a boost. Okay. Um, and also uh, nutrient levels vary in uh, agricultural and wild systems. Okay. 
So were you so you were looking at how that affects the flowers basically? Yes. And were you and then that then affects bee health. Mm -hmm. Were there bees in the greenhouse or was that kind of you were just like isolating like the fungus in the flower? Yeah, so it was done in isolation. It would have been nice to have done uh, foraging experiments, but I would have had to grow way more plants to uh -huh. um, actually feed bees in a greenhouse. So what I did was kind of crazy. Um, I spent every day, except for maybe four last summer, uh, at least six hours a day in the greenhouse collecting pollen and nectar from plants grown under these different conditions, so with and without the fungus and with high and low nutrients. And I kept each pollen and nectar type separate and then I took it back to the lab and fed it bees that were infected with this pathogen that's very common it's called crithidia um, and measured the ability of these diets from plants grown under different conditions to uh, reduce or maybe increase their pathogen levels okay um, and then I also did some assays on the chemistry of these uh, pollen and nectar types um, to determine whether that explained any difference in infection load Okay. So um, how did you get the, the sick bees? So we buy bumblebees. Okay. Um, they're commercially available because farmers use them to supplement pollination services. Um, so we use uh, Bombus and Patience. It's the common eastern bumblebee um, because they are commercially available. And we collected them. Uh, I didn't actually, but um, my lab mates a few years ago collected wild bees and isolated the pathogen crithidia and then we just keep it alive in the lab by infecting these hives and then when we need to do an experiment we dissect a bee count the amount of cells and inoculate these new uninfected bees with um, a known amount of the parasites so okay. kind of a very controlled way of determining diet effect on pathogen load yeah okay so you're making the bees sick yes and then seeing if you can make them better yeah <laughs> but we do dispose of them in a responsible way uh, you so don't just release them out into nature yeah. like go infect other bees do you at least play beyonce so they can feel comfortable i actually when i was running my experiment this week winter i was exclusively listening to beyonce i so. knew it yeah i knew, knew it because bees beyonce uh. <laughs> i didn't make that connection <laughs> I would have thought Cardi B would have been better given. Oh! <laughs> I would be equally happy, truthfully, which everyone was put on. Um, so, so did you find any impact on the the presence of this fungus and like the ability of the pollen to help the bees? So we actually found that nutrient level um, had a bigger effect, mm. but um, since my experiment was done in what's called a factorial design so i had both presence and absence of the fungus crossed with higher low nutrients so four treatment groups mm -hmm. if that makes sense right like two variables and then each one turned on and off kind of right yeah, yeah. so um ba basically i saw an interactive effect so i can't say that fungus always or high nutrients always reduces or increases disease it's these pairings that uh, mm. show different effects okay um but what's really exciting about that result is that it's showing that both abiotic and biotic factors in the soil can scale up not only to affect plants and um, their mutualist pollinators, but also pollinator interactions with their parasites. So there's a multiple trophic levels affected by these pretty basic soil mm. environmental factors. Yeah. So you said people use that fungus um, to enhance their crops and stuff. Does that mean you can just buy it at, at like a garden center or? Um, it would. I don't know that.
that every garden center would stock it. I bought it from a, an agricultural supply company, oh, though. Cool. So yeah, um, it's, there are many, many species of it, and there are a small subset of species that are actually used in agriculture. Oh, okay. Could you get the wrong species and have something really bad happen, or do you think like anything in the right vicinity? So what's really interesting about it is that um, the mutualism between the fungus and plants is actually very context dependent and can be species specific. So a particular species of the fungus may not really form a mutualism with a particular species of a plant. So um, I don't know that something really bad would happen, but you might not really get infection. So I did have to make sure that the species of plant and fungus that I was using in this study were compatible. Um, yeah. Also, I was interested in crossing high and low nutrients because mycorrhizal fungi can actually function on a, like a mutualistic um, to parasitic continuum. So when the plant isn't in high need of nutrients, it may not actually benefit as much from the fungus as it would when it's nutrient stressed. Because uh, that's the main benefit yeah. that the fungus confers is improving nutrient uptake. Oh. Interesting. How many different plants were you using for the study? Uh, 203 plants. Is that species of plants oh, or individual oh. plants? Uh, well, it was one species of plant, oh, okay. but individual plants. Oh, okay. Yeah. What, what plant was it? It was uh, domesticated tobacco. Oh. Um, this story just keeps getting more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> tobacco is a big crop around here, right? <laughs> sort of. There's a lot of tobacco barns. Have you, yeah. Do you guys see those tobacco barns? The know? red yeah. barn. Yeah, they like open up. They've got like all the, to dry the tobacco. Mm -hmm. Was it was it a local tobacco plant? So I just bought seeds. Uh huh. Also, just from a seed company. Okay. Um, I don't I don't know if I I heard this is all anecdotal, but I heard that the type of tobacco that's grown around here currently it's not a huge industry anymore. Yeah. But I heard that the few tobacco farmers that are actually still farming grow. Um, a special type of leaf that's used on the outside of cigars. Uh, so I don't know if that's a different species or yeah. a cultivar that I was using. Um, I think I was just using like regular cutting tobacco, you know, uh -huh. that's used in cigarettes. But um, yeah, we, we selected it mostly because it has interesting chemistry um, uh -huh. that it produces these compounds that may be medicinal for bees and also because it produces a ton of nectar. I absolutely could not have done this study if I used a plant species that produces a normal amount of nectar. How do you get the nectar from tobacco? Ah, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> you wear gloves because it's really <laughs> resinous. Um, so basically we would break the flowers off and remove their um, sepals. And uh, that kind of, you have to, it, it's an art. You have to hold the flower in the right way and you have a pipette in one hand and the droplet of nectar is just like quivering on the end of this broken <laughs> flower. And like you like very carefully suck it up and try not to contaminate it with pollen because like we're trying to look at pollen and nectar separately. And uh. So it was, it was pretty arduous. Um, and that was every day you said except for four days mm -hmm. in the last year. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like you were emphasizing that. You're like, yeah. I did not take a day. <laughs> I feel like on Christmas I was like <laughs> siphoning nectar off of tobacco flowers. What do um, tobacco flowers look like? They're actually case? really pretty. Um, they can be white, yellow, or pink. Mine were pink. Um, yes. And they have this really long floral tube, so kind of like a lily um, oh, or mm. trumpet flower. Uh -huh. um, I don't know if. Anyone recognize Sounds those? beautiful. I know what yeah. lilies look like, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they kind of like open up and you can see inside them. Uh -huh. yeah. And the plants produce many flowers each. 
Mm-hmm. So I feel like scientists that I know are like experts on one thing, but I feel like you've been talking about bees, flowers, fungus, and soil. So like, <laughs> what are you? <laughs> What's your like main hat that you feel like you wear? I I I really wanted my study to be comprehensive, so I guess it it's it sort of ended up being a got it got me interested by the end in. Uh, community ecology and how like multiple species interact with one another so all the above yeah i guess i would say multi-species interactions but specifically involving plants and insects are you so you're starting a phd in entomology yes so are you gonna stay with bees or are you gonna look at other insects or um i think i want to work with surfid flies which are flies that look like bees Um, (laughs) (laughs) wait what are they called uh, surfeit flies or hoverflies, okay. um, they're also mm. known as. But um, they're really cool because they pollinate plants, but they also um, lay eggs for their larvae, uh, or containing their larvae, um, on the leaves of plants that are infected with herbivores that cause damage to the plants, so like aphids or mites or whatever. Um, so they kind of provide two ecosystem services or agricultural ecosystem services because they provide this pollination and then they also provide kind of like pest control and this is true in managed and wild systems and their larvae are predaceous so they go and eat the oh. larvae. they have vicious babies they yes. their babies eat the <laughs> other predators that are hurting the leaves yes oh, oh interesting i feel like that came up recently like somebody was like Everyone forgets about flies as pollinators. Like, bees get so much credit. Yeah, flies flies are ugly. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like, how much, how do these ones look? You said they look like bees. Yeah, they're um, bright yellow and black striped. They kind of look like Uh a honeybee. So if I saw one, do you think I would ignorantly think it was a bee? You might. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, they're they're, they're pretty uh, accomplished mimics. Huh. I saw this, like, last summer, I saw... A moth that looked like a hummingbird, and me and Mike, I was, <laughs> I was gardening, and I was in the garden with a coworker, and she was like, "That's a moth," and I was like, "It's obviously a hummingbird." <laughs> and we got into an argument about it, and then like afterward, she texted me link and was like, "Look, it's the hummingbird moth." <laughs> Nature Crazy. always mixing us up. <laughs> cool. Um, hmm. I'm just fascinated. Like I, I'm still like back on the fungus part mm-hmm. um this is so but you're saying like this kind of happens naturally and you're studying it to like maybe utilize it in a more industrial way um when i was naively planning this study that's what i thought but then my advisor and my own reading and results have proven that if i were to come up with a management plan um to reduce bee disease or something, this would probably not be the simplest Mm. way to go about it. Um, Mycorrhizal fungi are really hard to control. Um, You you can't say, okay, I want my plants to to associate and inoculate and necessarily get that because as I said, context um, dependency is a major factor in the mutualism. and since I did this study in the greenhouse and in the lab, there's like a whole slew of factors that would need to right. be assessed before I could like go out and say, even though I did see a difference in disease loads based on plant growing condition, 
I, I would need to corroborate that a little bit more in the field before telling people that this was a viable way to, right. to reduce bee disease. Yeah. Cool. I think you're not the first person I've interviewed who um, who gives bees an illness and then tries <laughs> to make it better. But it might be because you guys I work in the same I thought bees lab. were hurting already. Well, that's the whole reason <laughs> is to figure out how to help them. Huh. But it's, it's like when they say right? it's good to put Shamu in SeaWorld because we're helping them. It's <laughs> It's complicated. <laughs> Conservation <don't> is complicated. <laughs> but um, you might know George Lacasio. Yeah, or, we yeah. work in the same lab. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, Killing okay. bees together. That makes sense that it's the same lab. There's Mutilating not just lots bees of different together. labs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, can you tell me again, what, what's the name of the bee? Like the... Uh, the bee species. Yeah. Um, the common eastern bumblebee. Uh -huh. um, its Latin name is Bombus impatiens. That's a really yes. <laughs> that, that somebody is. rap name. Somebody listening. Bombus impatiens. Take is a really it. Good Just take name. it. Yeah. I feel like I need to remember. Is that, that. Twitter handle available? <laughs> I don't know. Have you checked? I haven't checked. You should claim it. Yeah. That should be <laughs> if you if if you wanna. There are a lot of bee nerds. I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if it were taken. And also, yeah, it's probably taken. Yeah. <laughs> What's the bee nerd community like? <laughs> I mean, is it anything like the beehive? Like, <laughs> what if they're the same? What is if Beyonce has single-handedly like increased the interest in like bees and like oh. young people? What if everybody studies bees? Or I wonder if it makes it hard for people trying to study <laughs> bees. They're like trying to look up like beehives. It's all beehives, and they're like, no, no, not Beyonce. <laughs> That has happened to me. Really? <laughs> <laughs> when trying to like put pr presentations together and finding stock photos on Google Images. <laughs> Does anybody ever include a picture of Beyonce in their presentations? I haven't seen one, but it's a good idea. This is a call to action you have to do. That. Yeah. <laughs> so um, how did you get into this, this area of research? Um, so I actually took many years off before coming to school and um, starting as a teenager I worked on a farm and I really liked it and I actually started my or co-founded my own uh, landscaping business oh, wow. um, on Cape Cod and while I was doing that I decided I need some sort of certification because I'm like doing all this stuff with people's land and um, the community college on Cape Cod has a horticulture certificate program so I enrolled and then I fell in love with science mm. um, after taking entomology and botany and biology. Um, and then I kind of decided to just keep going. Um, and so I came to UMass and I really wanted to get research experience and I emailed a bunch of professors and Lynn Adler, my thesis advisor and the person who runs this lab that gives bees disease and <laughs> kills them. Kills bees. <laughs> um, was perfect for me. I'm, she was kind of, you know, had one foot in agricultural applications of research which at the time was my exclusive interest but also doing really interesting ecology research um, with bees and um, yeah it was just I feel so lucky that I got into that lab because I don't really think there's a an analog at UMass of her lab and she's been a great mentor and um, I, I just I had great lab mates who taught me and I picked it up and decided to do a thesis and nice. now here I am cool I really like that story because I like love sh like seeing how people do science before you know you're doing science or like you're just like I don't know 
every time when you microwave something for longer than you did last time, that's science, right? Yeah. You didn't experiment. <laughs> it was still cold. So you put it back in. Now you know. And like you were running this business and you were doing science the whole time. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. <clears throat> Are so, there a lot of bees on Cape Cod? I wasn't really... You weren't the bee girl then? No, I wasn't. <laughs> um, I was kind of more like the slug girl. Oh, um, man. Yeah, I had a lot of slug problems in the gardens that I uh, <laughs> okay. planted. Um, you know, I did try to catch some bees last year, and um, I didn't see a ton, but also there weren't a ton of bees in the spring out here last year, so I don't know if it was kind of not the greatest year for them. Um, there are a ton of bees out this year. There, uh, there are a ton of queens that I've seen flying around. Queens. Um, yeah. That's so yeah. fun. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know if there's... There's there's not a lot of bees on Cape Cod. There's just a lot of wasps. <laughs> oh, really? Ooh. Ooh. Yikes. <laughs> Let it sink in. Oh, I, I did not <laughs> that. was that. my... Yikes. You can tell I've been to Cape Cod once. <laughs> I'm not from Massachusetts, so... I've only... Yeah... I'm just getting initiated still. <laughs> it's like a big part of life. You haven't been says. stung by a Nantucket wasp. <laughs> <laughs> now I got to reflect on that. I don't think if that happened or not. No, I don't think so. Uh, Wait, so what kind of mayhem would the slugs cause you? Um, I was growing a lot of greens. Um, so like lettuce and kale and collard greens. And um, they really like that sort of thing. And so it's health nuts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And they would just crawl up and put holes in them. And, you know, people. I, so I did a lot of edible gardening for people, actually. Uh -huh. um, and yeah, they just don't want slugs on their bees. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not appetizing. No. So were you originally hoping to figure out what to do about those slugs or? Yeah, I tried really hard. There are a lot of uh, DIY slug repellents that don't work. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. But one that did work was burying. Um, half cut off beer cans that you, or soda cans that you um, cut these niches in so they're really sharp and when the slugs crawl over them, <gasps> it, yeah. They're too sensitive yeah, and, and it, yeah. Ooh, ouch. Yeah, I, I'm not really giving myself a good Murder! <laughs> 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 you need to back up on the mic a little bit. No, the mic needs to back up the mic. <laughs> <laughs> that just like crackled the mic. <laughs> well, that's not really murdering the slugs because they come up and they're like, and they back up. It's like barbed wire for slugs, maybe more. You're not like murdering them. It's not like Call you're pouring. Peter. You're not pouring salt on them. <laughs> Forgot that salt was the slug thing. Yeah. The slug poison. Yeah, th that's what I was thinking. I'm like, you just make like a perimeter of salt, but that doesn't. <laughs> Did that you ever try like that? <laughs> but they can't. There's. They're just like. They're you just like. Pass. They're literally just made of moisture. <laughs> like, they're just like right. Like they're just like. I don't even know. Uh, <laughs> did you ever try that? I never uh. tried that. I never came across that. I think it would get pretty expensive. Yeah. Not to mention ruin your garden. Yeah, that's true. It would true, ruin right? the edges yeah, like of your the earth until it doesn't grow anymore. <laughs> uh, grow well, you don't put it in the garden. You put it outside in the garden. And then rain. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What you did we say before? Conservation is complicated. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious. Um, for the back to the bees, um, did you have to do any kind of like ethics training before learning how to give the bees disease? No, no? Um, oh. that you don't have to do that with insects. Oh um, wow! Yeah, we we talk about that in the lab sometimes. Uh huh. Iowa Cook's the governing body in, uh, on campus. It's a national body, but they uh, 
they really only care about things that are vertebrates. Mm-hmm. If you're an invertebrate, whatever, yeah. you can do whatever you want. Interesting. Speciesism. Yeah. Yeah, I'm always like, well, I'm glad I work with rocks, and I really don't have very many ethical considerations. <laughs> I don't think. Maybe there's some that I haven't thought about. Some rocks are special to some people. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> uh, so, um, were there any like unexpected challenges or anything that happened that was like unexpected about your research that you like? Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I, f- I mean, there was a whole slew of challenges in the beginning. Um, <laughs> my, we thought we I would do this experiment in about three months, uh-huh. um, or that at least that the plants would flower within three months. They actually took eight months to flower. Oh wow. So that's why I was in the greenhouse in the 90-degree weather last summer. I was planning to have, like, a nice leisurely winter in the greenhouse, but it didn't quite work out that way. Oh, no. Um, yeah, and and um, the flowering period was was really different based on how the plants were grown. So some plants mm. started flowering last May, whereas some didn't flower till August, which oh. kind of set me back because I was spending more time collecting um, pollen and nectar in the greenhouse. Um, in the beginning, I had a hard time getting my plants inoculated with the fungus, so I actually had to put the fungus in the soil and then make sure that that treatment had actually worked, and it didn't work at first. So, um, Does that mean, like, the fungus died, or...? I don't know, actually. So I did spore viability tests, and the spores were viable. I don't know if there's some sort of phenology... Um, compatibility or if it had to do with the fact that I was growing plants in the winter I, I mm-hmm. I'm not really sure um, but it didn't like hold on to the plant is that what you're looking for like that it's on the plant or in the plant or? you want to look and make sure it's inside the root and it wasn't uh, inside the root and that kind of confirms that the mutualism has kind of taken off um, okay. yeah and I had to sterilize all the soil I grew my plants in so I spent several weeks sterilizing like gallons and gallons of soil i had like 20 trash bins full of soil i think what does that even mean how do you how do you, how sterilize do you make soil? dirt not dirt you cook <laughs> it in a an autoclave oh. with, which is basically like an oven um and yeah at the end of the 20 barrel sterilization um i opened the first barrel that i had sterilized and it hadn't been sterilized and it was covered in mold so i had to <gasps> do it all over oh, again. No. so something yeah. went wrong with the process or yeah yeah, I mean, there's so many spores in the air. So between oh. the time when I took mm. it out of the oven, the autoclave, and put it in the bin, yeah, something, something happened. Yeah, but then I did it again, and it worked out. So. Okay, and I, good. yeah, I think somebody helped me uh, amend my methods of sterilization. Yeah. Hmm. So what's working in the greenhouse like? Like, is it hot? And what does it smell like? And can you play music? Yeah, we played a lot of music. Um, it was hot in the summer. It was really, it was kind of cool or really nice in the winter, depending on the outdoor temperature. And I was told, I don't know if I was just uh, so conditioned that I didn't notice, but some people who were helping me said that they felt like it smelled like tobacco in there all the time. Uh-huh. And it, the air does feel heavy because there are so many plants just like doing their thing. Doing their breathing thing. Yeah. And like they're exuding these like tobacco volatiles, and you just felt sticky as soon as you went in there. It was huh. actually a high schooler who volunteered and helped me wrote an essay about it. Um, she didn't end up using it as her college admission admissions essay, <laughs> but she was going to. It, it was my <laughs> summer with tobacco volatiles. <laughs> 
Yeah, it was pretty impressive. Very vivid. I, I felt very guilty after reading it. <laughs> <laughs> was it like a? Was it like surviving the greenhouse? Yeah, pretty oh, much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have to be careful with the handling tobacco? Like, because it'll will the chemicals just go right through your skin? Yeah, people, um, tobacco pickers actually um, can get. Um, well, I don't know if it's harvested by machine now, but when tobacco pickers used to pick tobacco, they could get, um, I forget what it's called, nicotine poisoning maybe or something like that. Uh -huh. um, but you can vomit and have all sorts of side oh, effects. Yeah. Um, so we would wear gloves. Um, also, it's just not pleasant because it's so sticky. Yeah. You get everything dirty. Yeah, nicotine is an insecticide. It's just a plant-made one. I mean, that's why it, uh -huh. it exists because it helps keep insects away from plants. Oh, okay. that's, that's, that's just a natural defense. Mm -hmm. hmm. Interesting. I wonder, yeah, I'm curious. I feel like would nicotine kill a fungus too, or is that not like, yeah, no I don't idea. know if that could have any effect on. Will nicotine kill I a don't mosquito? Know much about it. Uh, nicotine will ki kill a human if you take enough of it at a single mm, time, so yeah. I'm sure it will, yeah. You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. My guests today are Joe Drake from the Environmental Conservation Department and Julie Davis, recent graduate of Plant, Soil, and Insect Sciences. My co-host today is comedian Rocky B. Let's jump right back into it. Okay, then maybe we'll switch gears and turn and talk to Joe. Hey, Joe. <laughs> Hello. So, uh, yeah, you want to dive right in? Tell us about your research? Uh, sure, yeah. So um, my little snippet. Uh, does my research injustice as everybody's little snippet does re injustice to their research, but I study connectivity, how animals remain or get unconnected across the landscape. Uh, I use a lot of different methods to study connectivity, everything from circuit theory, which is like the electronic circuits that run through your phone, to graph theory, which is how uh, a subset uh, of that is network theory, which is how people look at how connections are made, like on social networks, uh, mm. and also um, things called least cost path modeling, which basically are just different ways to interpret the landscape. So you can say, this is how an animal, if it was deciding to move from point A to point B, how it would actually get from point A to point B, and how it would uh, behave in the landscape, how it would see the landscape, and then how successful it would actually be from getting from point A to point B. And now that I've joined uh, Dr. Chris Sutherland's lab at UMass, I've been adding to that another layer, which is called metapopulation modeling. So metapopulations meta are populations of populations. Think about if you had a landscape, like a big open field, and in it were these tiny little ponds. And inside of those ponds lived frogs. So they would be their own little encased populations. And every once in a while, one of them would get an itch and be like, I want to go visit that pond across the field. And it would just get up and go across, figuring out which of those ponds are occupied and which ones go extinct which ones get recolonized. That's all part of metapopulation modeling, and it goes hand in hand with this landscape resistance circuit graph theory modeling, this connectivity modeling. Uh, it hasn't been done much before putting these two together, and I'm really trying to push the envelope of how these research models are used. 
Okay. Wow. We have a question. So, where does landscape fit on like the scale of things? Like you talked about, like a pond, but like is a landscape more like an ecosystem, or is it smaller than that? Or it's context dependent, okay. like everything. But yeah. uh, generally thinking, uh, you can have every anything from the size of a football field, say if you're a bee, or up to the size of the whole Sonoran Desert if you're a pronghorn sheep. Hmm. What's my landscape? <laughs> UMass campus. UMass. U- University city. Yeah. A little bit of Route 9 Hadley. Right now, my landscape is pretty much from my bed to my office and with stops to the coffee maker in between. Okay. <laughs> so do you study any specific species or? Uh, so for my master's work at Texas Tech, I studied 26 different species. Everything from bullfrogs to bighorn sheep, and okay. I studied how they moved across between isolated water sites in the Sonoran Desert. Uh, now, uh, at UMass, I'm studying something called a water vole. Think muskrat, but tinier and cuter. Uh-huh. Uh, and they live in the highlands of Scotland. So they're mm. pretty cool. They're a really, really special uh, organism because they epitomize the metapopulation population structure that's for nerds like me it's like big deal it doesn't happen often where it like happens exactly like it's supposed to in nature okay so what does that mean like what are they doing that's that's um so they live in the highlands uh and how they live is in these tiny little stretches along rivers that have really good vegetation for them to eat uh, and really soft dirt for them to burrow in and in between these tiny little patches that are like i don't know couple hundred meters long there are kilometers of distance and so these tiny little 300 gram I don't know like something like the size of a kitty football uh, is going kilometers to try and disperse and find where it's going to live uh, and mate and survive for the next couple years Mm. so it's it's really neat because these patches will go extinct and then uh, the next year, some some disperser, some water vole from another population will show up and start a whole new uh, family group there. Oh. And mm. it's just like this big, wide, empty sp- expanse. And you're like, how do these things get from point A to point B and survive doing it? Yeah. So how do you study that? I mean, obviously you go and you watch them, but do you tag them? Or? So they're actually really hard to watch. Uh-huh. They're super... Uh, shy and they so, burrow so they yeah. like in yeah, the so ground for if, a long you, time? if you're walking up to where they live probably the only thing you'll hear of them is a little plop as they disappear into the river uh-huh. and the only thing you'll see of them is their poop oh. So, <laughs> oh so do you study their poop actually uh, yeah so oh. one of the so one of the ways we track them is called latrine surveys because you know you got to make it sound uh. more fancy than it actually is poop <laughs> he's studying poop i keep forgetting <laughs> Back away when you want to yell. It's because I can't hear myself. <laughs> You're just like, I just watched the sound monitor and just like crank up to red. It's all right. Sometimes it gets a little crunchy like that too. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so you walk around through the Scottish Highlands in this uh, specific area called Ascent. Uh, it's just one small area. And uh, we basically go around and count to see if there are fresh latrines and we go back a couple different times just to make sure we're actually seeing something. If we didn't see it the first time, make sure you know there's uh, replication. It's called imperfect detection, uh, accounting for imperfect detection. 
And then once we figure out about where they're living uh, on the landscape, we go back out with live traps and we live trap them. Uh, so we set out a tiny little metal uh, box with a spring trap in it and put like some carrots and some bedding in there and maybe a potato whatever they, they apparently they like carrots and potatoes uh, they're scottish i like so. carrots and potatoes <laughs> <laughs> just boil it <laughs> and so uh so we go out there and we uh live trap each um each one of these little meta population these patches uh for four days in a row to make sure we catch all the individuals out there and they are nasty, mean little things. Oh, really? Oh, they bite they're you? not into being oh, caught. Oh, 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 they, no, they I wouldn't sound? be either. Yeah, if a no, giant either. came out of the sky and pulled me out of a metal box that I just got trapped in overnight, I'd probably try and bite its hand, too. Yeah. I would want more carrots and potatoes. <laughs> uh, do they have teeth? They sound like they got mean little teeth. Big. Yeah. So this they're rodents, uh, and so their teeth are continually growing, like most rodents. So just like, yikes. Uh, I, last season, did not get a full-on bite, thankfully, but, um, yeah, there I've been bitten by uh, things like that before, and it, it's surprisingly unpleasant. <laughs> I, I didn't know that um, rodents' teeth are continually growing. Yeah, that's why I they guess, have to keep chewing on yeah, stuff. Yeah, that makes sense, but I never... Maybe I learned it and I forgot. It's one of those, like, third-grade factoids that everybody loves to remember for, like, <laughs> six months, and then mm. it just... Away yeah, it's because after third grade, every time you interact with a rodent, it's extremely unpleasant. <laughs> like, I don't want to know that about the mice I find in my basement. So that's true of all rodents? That's like... I'm pretty sure that oh. that's oh one my of God, the defining you... features of rodents. Of what, that's what, yeah. I'm oh. imagining the capybara with really long teeth. <laughs> that would be terrifying. Right? Yeah. Also, I think that's considered a fish in Brazil. <laughs> Wait, what? Because uh, no, no, sorry, that's the nutria. Sorry, <laughs> the nutria is considered a fish in Brazil. It's an invasive species. So the Catholic Church said because Catholics are not supposed to eat oh, meat on oh, okay. Fridays. So not by scientists, no. by Catholics. <laughs> Those are the same. Not things, no. Laura. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. Wait, what? <laughs> the same thing? No, I know those Venn diagrams overlap, but it's not like scientists designated them as fish. No, but I think that's hilarious. Like not biologists. They're they're just trying to help. Uh, get rid of the invasive. They're like it's, religion o- it's was okay the first to science, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> so they're saying it's okay to eat them on yeah. Friday. Basically, they're like every day of the week eat these. Yes, pretty much. Okay. Uh, but we digress. Um, <laughs> What's the when is the field season in Scotland? So I'm heading out uh, in the middle of June. I'll be uh, setting up just before uh, the beginning of July, and then we trap and do latrine surveys from the beginning of July all the way through uh, the middle and sometimes all the way into the end of August. And that's, like, pretty chill weather, right? It's, like... Chilly weather, yes. Yeah, well, I mean, like, (laughs) I feel like being outside, like, poop hunting, you don't want it to be too hot. So Mm. I'm a little biased on this. I used to work in the Sonoran Desert, Mm. so I'd have, like, 115-degree days. Like, that was our normal. Sometimes we'd have up to 125 I had a a data logger out in one specific uh, spot that got 134 degrees Fahrenheit, which matches the hottest temperature ever recorded in Death Valley. Oh. So 
but I, you enjoyed that. I it love sounds it. like you're <laughs> like yeah. actually the Highlands don't sound so. It's it's just a whole different thing because yeah. uh, before working in the Sonoran Desert, I worked in uh, Micronesia, so I had the cloud forest, so I had hot and wet, and then I went hot and dry. Now I'm doing cold and wet. So wow, it sounds like you get to go to all of the coolest places. I studying connectivity, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not a coincidence. That's by design. I, I worked really hard to be able to do that. <laughs> um, so yeah, actually, uh, I guess before I even came here and before I went to Texas Tech, after I got my uh, undergraduate degree, I basically I got my undergraduate undergraduate degree at IU, uh, Indiana University. I grew up in southern Indiana, and having grown up near a small town, uh, like really rural, my parents just got internet in February of last, November of last year. So oh, congratulations. That's how yeah, they right. can listen to the wow. show now. Yeah. <laughs> Do they know what SoundCloud is? <laughs> <laughs> iTunes? No. They got iTunes. Oh, all right. What's their main website? Sorry, this is divergence. <laughs> 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 yeah, I got it. They have um. internet, Laura. They don't use internet yet, all right? True story. Are they on Twitter? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they don't even know what Twitter is. <laughs> but um, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> seriously, I think everybody knows what Twitter is right now. For anyway, what? okay, <laughs> we can move forward. <laughs> um, but so I basically uh, got the heck out of Dodge and uh, went out west and lived out of the back of my truck for four years. Uh, working was that better or worse than random place Indiana? Way better because. <laughs> Uh, I would work for three to eight months doing these small short-term field biology gigs, working either for the Park Service or the Forest Service mm. or different universities as a biological technician and, or a firefighter. Uh, and I basically got to work for like really short periods of time. And then between jobs, I'd have like a month or two where I could just go backpacking and drive around the West, oh, do whatever I wanted. Nice. It was pretty sweet. Um, but... Uh, Eventually, you get tired of sleeping out of the back of your truck, so you're like, yeah, and maybe I should actually get a, a real job, and I guess I have to get an education to do that, so. Merp. Little things. Yeah, the little things like that. So, you just brought up Twitter, and I'm always thinking about Twitter, and <laughs> I mentioned that I'm off social media this week. It's really sad for me. But once you started talking about the idea of connectivity and, like, social media, I was just like, what if you discover that these water voles have had like their own social media this whole time. Well, that's what their poop is actually. Oh, oh. So they, they, please say more. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, please. I can't tell if you're talking up poop or trashing social media right now. <laughs> stay tuned, stay tuned. Um, so uh, one of the ways, they're, they're super territorial. One of the ways these uh, family units kind of uh, spread out and like kind of declare their territory is they're, they're latrines. They make big deposits in single areas. So you can kind of figure out how many rough scents are in an area by how big the pile of poop is. Wait, so are they pooping together also? They, they'll, they'll poop, like, family units will poop on like, the edges of their territory. Look at that bonding. <laughs> American families don't do stuff like that together anymore. They poop anymore. in the same place, usually. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, uh, so the, 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 the kind of, like, the dominant uh, individual sure this is right though they they don't have scent glands uh like they don't have anal scent glands they have scent glands on uh their like their like uh wrists paws areas and so they mm. stamp on their feces to lay their scent mark uh -huh. and that's their social network wow 
So yeah, mm. back to what you're saying. Is that better or worse than Twitter? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, so that's like most animals, you right? Like you send as their yeah. way of communicating that they've been somewhere. Yeah, it's or super that important. They... I mean, we're such visual creatures. We tend to forget that. You don't need a geotag. You got a poop tag. <laughs> Cement tag. Cement. Sent. No hash, hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> Smash tag? I don't know. Smash tag. <laughs> Trash tag. Trash um. tag. <laughs> well, there are voles here too, right? Yeah, so uh, water voles are a specific species uh, of uh, microtene rodent that mm-hmm. lives in uh, northern Europe and uh, the UK. They're a one of the most threatened species in the UK uh, because of an invasive species. Here in the United States, we always, at least us in the uh, conservation community, often think about invasive species coming to the United States and wrecking uh, the ecosystems living here, like the zebra mussel or the quagga, or uh, pick your invasive species that riles your uh, fancy whatever. I just Mm -hmm. Mix some idioms, sorry. <laughs> Pretty bad about that. Uh, but we actually ended up uh, sending the American mink to Scotland. Uh, Scottish fur farmers used to use them for fur farming, and lo and behold, some of them got out, and they're, they share the same type of habitat requirements as water bulls, uh, which are these kind of riparian areas, these tiny little burrows, and they just destroyed uh, the water bull population mm. probably by 94% across the wow. UK. Now, the population I'm working with in, in the far North Highlands is just beyond the kind of uh, American mink threshold. They kind uh. of stopped because they, they uh, the metapopulation was so dispersed, they weren't uh, high enough levels to really support big uh, populations of mink, so they haven't gotten that far north, but farther south where voles were much thicker and almost continuously populated, think like white-tailed deer here in the United States where they're just everywhere, uh-huh. um, the the mink just destroyed them. So what does the vole look like? Is it, I'm trying to feel like I have a picture of their like mice with like little long noses. No, no, Is that right? Have you ever seen a muskrat? Mm. A muskrat's like a like I'm thinking slender. of like a, a meerkat, not a muskrat, I think. <laughs> yeah. So it's shaped like a small football or a pear, um, or like a big pear or a small oh. football. Uh, kind of this, it's about, I don't know, what's that? Between four to eight inches, depending on the size of the thing, or if it's like a juvenile or an adult. Okay. And they are kind of ridiculously cute okay. until you try to hold them and, and then they, they just you. become uh, peeing pooping <laughs> uh, biting machines so just like babies actually yeah. <laughs> <laughs> babies don't bite anything cute <laughs> yeah I mean, they do they need teeth to bite oh okay so babies definitely bite what you, color are they are m- they like mostly there's two main colors there's like a brown variant and a black variant mm. and sometimes you can get like kind of dual colored have you seen an albino one i've not i've seen some with some really big white patches some like albinism spots but i've mm. not seen any um fully al- albinistic there were f- tangent for uh albinistic uh fox kits seen uh just in massachusetts the other day oh i see foxes all the time really yeah where around 
It's a mama fox. She goes to work. Her babies say bye. They scream for a couple hours. Oh, okay. Okay, I'm seeing a picture of the, the vole right now. It's Is it what cute. you imagine? No, it's not. I was thinking of something else. Oh, that's exactly <laughs> what I imagined. It's cute, though. An she angry angry it kind of looks like a beaver. potato to me. It looks yeah, like, like a, a small beaver, beaver, yeah. but a long no beaver potato tail. with a long tail. Yeah, like a furry potato. Mm, <laughs> which is potato. Cute. So, uh, you asked about the weather before, and generally I'm wearing uh, rain pants, rain jacket. Mm. Uh, my boots are like soaked through. It's just always raining up there. Um, uh, do you camp when you're doing field work, or do you get a cabin? Or uh, thankfully, we have a cabin. I've had to do the whole camping bit, and if it was, I would not want to do it up in the Not house. when it's that wet. No, and the rain. Never camping in the warm. rain is the worst. Yeah. yeah. Never get warm, never get dry. It's yeah. pretty awful. Um, but even if it wasn't raining, I would wear rain pants and rain jackets just for how much they poop and pee everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so when you uh, start handling them, so you, uh, the, you have a special way of holding them so they can't like reach their head around to bite your hand as you're um. trying to uh, take measurements and uh, take a genetic sample and uh, tag. You, sorry. Uh, and tag them. So there's a whole process of you know identifying their sex, their age, their weight doing all these things and I learned that when you first pick them up you just hold them and face them away for you for like just like, let them get it out yeah just let them get it out <laughs> <laughs> and then you turn them back around and you grab a little vial and you collect their poop and then you uh, collect a little uh, snippet of their ear for their genetic sample and oh. how long does that take like you get one and you do the whole doctor checkup from start uh, to finish how long is it when, when I was first learning how to do it it took couple minutes but you can if you when, once you get it down uh you can get it down to like one or two minutes wow pop, which is pretty nice pretty fast yeah that seems really fast seems i feel like it would take fast. me at least 20 minutes to collect a bowl <laughs> year so the longest part of the process was actually so we we um to try and reduce the stress on the animals we were testing out a uh a new technique for IDing them. So uh, before we were using in-ear tags, which had a, a identification number. We were trying a new technique uh, where we painted their toenails. Oh, fancy! I know, right? It was awesome, but it didn't work very well, uh, unfortunately. But so then you wouldn't have to like puncture their ear. Yeah, so we wouldn't have to puncture their ear if that would have worked really uh, well, but. Can you just imagine it, you know, taking a little paint nail brush, painting <laughs> the tiny little toenails in different color combinations. That took the longest. Oh. Just, just kind of waving it around in the air, letting it dry. <laughs> <laughs> so the tags, um, you're not, like, tracking them with the tags. It's just so that if you catch the same animal, you'll know. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, there are very few GPS collars, which you would use for what you were just suggested. That would be small enough to fit them. <laughs> and also not kill them as they swam through the water and get oh. stuck in their little burrows. Yeah. Uh. So GPS collars are not really a viable option for them, unfortunately, because I really would love to tag them to track those kind of like once-in-a-lifetime long-distance migration events they do. What about those chip thingies? So I'm glad you brought that up. You uh, put them in dogs and stuff these oh, days. Right. Yeah, they're called yeah. RFID tags, radio mm -hmm. frequency identification something something science. Uh <laughs> But we're actually looking at uh, uh, there. I have a, a 
a peer uh, PhD student in uh, the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, uh, the organization that I'm kind of working out of while I'm there in Scotland, uh, who has been using RFID tags to uh, kind of monitor uh, individuals over longer periods of time. Uh, and we're looking at trying to introduce that into our system for uh, the ability to not only track them in in the year that we're there because you know we'd pop a tag in and if we could recaught them we'd know where they came from and it'd be an easy way to identify them but also for those few individuals that survive the next year and then very few individuals that survive for three years they really reproduce and die really quickly but mm. that way we can if like we showed up next year uh oftentimes like an ear tag will be pulled out or of course the toenail paints would be gone it would wear off. and yeah. so the rfid tags would be great for tracking individuals across years and between these patches and seeing if they like showed up between years mm. what about like the big idea of your work like how does knowing about this help us or what's the relationship to like the broader ideas in ecology and stuff good question mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's kind of like a basic and an applied question there so your basic research aspect of it would be that understanding how animals disperse through the landscape and survive and then ultimately successfully colonize allows us to then figure out better how species persist in a landscape, especially species that naturally persist in a fragmented landscape. This is a really uh, interesting ecological question because if you look at how it should work there are these small disconnected populations that sh should ultimately die out that just have too few individuals to survive themselves but through the uh, through tracking and understanding the process of dispersal then you can understand how these naturally fragmented systems continue to persist even if some of them are going extinct and some of them are mm -hmm. being recolonized. Understanding that process allows us to understand uh, demographic stochasticity, fancy way of saying how things change through time. Okay, um, so I think we're ready to move on to the last part of our show, which is a little oh, game no. that I created called Guess That Acronym. Oh, wait, I forgot to call it. It's GTA. <laughs> <laughs> Guess That Acronym. Um, and the way this game works is that my guests have provided me with some acronyms, and we're going to try to make Rocky B guess what they mean. I took notes during this whole You thing. did. You were trying to prepare. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, we'll see if we can stump you. Um, so, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so our first acronym is AMF. AMF? AMF? It did come up, but... It did? Oh my god, I'm already stumped. Wait, I saw who you looked at. Yeah. Well, clue okay. who I'm not now. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say fungus is one word. Um, uh, I'm so nervous. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to guess and say a magnificent fungus. That's totally right. <laughs> I knew it. Okay, maybe not completely right, but close. Do you want to jump in? Yeah, then? so um, you got fungus right. Oh, the, yeah. The first two words are inconveniently long and hard to pronounce in sequence. Um, arbuscular mycorrhizal 
fungi. See, those were the when she was talking when I was like, whoop, missed that one. Whoop, yeah. <laughs> no, I have it like typed out in front of me and I'm like, I'm not even going to try to <laughs> say that actually. <laughs> so yeah, that would be a tough one to guess. That's not the point of the game though. But that's that fungi that's that's that mutually beneficial with the plants. Yeah, so like it arbuscules, arbuscular, arbuscules are the um the site of exchange of nutrients between the fungus and the plant. Oh. And then mycorrhizal, broken down, myco means uh, mushroom fungus, um, and rhizal means root. So it's saying uh-huh. this is a fungus that uh, exists in the roots of plants um, and forms arbuscules. And arbuscules oh. are diagnostic of this type of fungus. So. Okay. Um, there are other types of fungus, like pathogens, maybe that would invade plants. So to distinguish this fungus between other types of fungus, it's been named thus. Oh, okay. So it really, the name really describes a lot about what it's doing. Root yeah. chilling fungus. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's much easier to say. <laughs> Let's rename it RCF. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Our next acronym is CWD. CWD. Mm-hmm. CWD. I'll give you a hint. It has nothing to do with fungus or bees. <laughs> I don't uh, think, actually. I knew it. Okay. I knew you were going to switch it up. And I actually don't know what this one stands for either. Oh, man. Okay. Casually wet days. So it reminds <laughs> me of Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> <Some> nice. <laughs> Close, but no. Uh, okay, what's it's, it mean? Uh, cost weight distance. It's a term that refers to how you calculate that that landscape resistance to the animal movement. Huh. It's uh, super nerdy. So whose weight and whose distance? Uh, whose cost? So <laughs> the cost of the animal, uh, whose weight is, so it's like a statistical weighting. Uh-huh. If you break the landscape into tiny little squares, assign mm. each habitat a specific, like, uh, cost to move through so if you're like a deer oh. a highway would have a higher cost to move across oh. than a nice ah. meadow yeah. and uh, then you basically say uh, the straight line distance from A to B is actually this far because it, there's that big shopping mall in the middle mm-hmm. so it'd be harder to move across than oh. just if it was a forest Actually, that seems really useful for useful. for us too. Yeah. I'm like, I think about that. Like when I'm moving around, I'm like, oh, same. I, I won't get way. on a bus if I know it's like school time and everyone's gonna be on the bus. Right. The I'm big cost in the, in the Pioneer Valley is that bridge. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> like, oh, I can't do that thing. Actually, bridge traffic. <laughs> Sorry, not coming. <laughs> okay, I think that's the end of our show. Thank you so much for coming, Rocky B and Julie and Joe. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It was great, Laura. You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. My guests today were Joe Drake and Julie Davis. My co-host was comedian Rocky B. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. You can check out Lab Talk with Laura on iTunes or SoundCloud or Facebook. Please give us a like or a subscribe or all of those things, a share. Um, Online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is supported by the Emmerich Lab in the Polymer Science Department. Thank you so much for listening. Keep it locked to 91.1 FM WMUA Amherst.